Sunday, 17th of February, Winton Higgins, fourth out of four talks on secular Buddhism in Wellington, New Zealand. Okay, well, you'll be relieved to know this is the last talk. Um, and it's, I'm called it Ask Not Whether It's True, Ask Rather Whether It Works. And um, I guess this is inspired by uh, the great uh, American school of philosophy called Pragmatism, from John Dewey to Richard Rorty. Uh, but um, the pragmatists are very like Nietzsche. They've sort of uh, uh, have taken the same step as Nietzsche out of metaphysical thought into something um, much more practical. And Nietzsche's basic insight, which they've taken over, is that human actions ideas and truth claims merely express individual or collective authors' needs and interests. So Nietzsche's point was, you know, someone says, I'm now going to reveal to you the truth. Um, one's response should be, whose needs and interests are you serving? Um, because uh, all revelations and uh, truth claims Nietzsche is suggesting, are driven by human needs and interests. I mean, they might be altruistic ones, but quite a lot of the time, they're not. Uh, and if you take, for instance, uh, a familiar truth claim, there is an almighty God, and he has put me in charge of you, <laughs> and if you disobey my rules and orders, he will see you burn in hell forever. <laughs> Now, uh, as a uh, revelation or a truth claim, this was astonishingly uh, effective, you know, for the person or the interests who made it. Uh, a very common truth claim in uh, the Middle East and in the Western world in pre-modern times. But thanks partly to Nietzsche's influence, it doesn't seem to work anymore. Um, and uh, these days we're faced with a revelation or truth claim like that. Uh, we don't really have to ask whether it's true or not. We just have to ask, well, in whose interests is this being made? What's this metaphor of God about? Uh, whose interest does it serve? And... Um, is it the case that the power freak standing in front of me making this truth claim uh, really actually lacks any other way of coercing me and this is a, just an attempt to con me? So in this way, uh, I'm taking a crude example, but it just seems to me important for, um, for secular Buddhism to go down the Nietzschean pragmatist path and really not get involved in these crazy debates between theists and atheists. You know, it really does not concern us. We know what it's all about. Uh, it's not our fight. Um, so what the pragmatists are saying is that utility always trumps truth. Uh, if uh, we're looking at uh, not just truth claims, but um, 
belief systems, rituals, etc. The issue is, what what use do they serve? What are they for, rather than whether they are true? Uh, and I think that the birth of the Dharma, two thousand five hundred years ago, in uh, the Gangetic Basin, really follows this sort of logic. Um, needs and interests. So what was going on then? Uh, the agricultural revolution was, uh, was uh, unfolding in this part of the world as it was unfolding, unfolding in Greece, for instance. And the agricultural revolution was uh, about improvements in metallurgy and agricultural methods so that um, uh, those agricultural communities that have been struggling to produce uh, subsistence goods uh, were, over time, through this process of the agricultural revolution, able to produce a surplus. Uh, they were producing more than they needed. So what did they do? They traded it. So uh, with the agricultural revolution came trade trading centres, the beginning of urbanisation. Uh, people moving from, the, um, from these desperate rural uh, communities into the city uh, where they were setting themselves up with trades uh, or in uh, merchanting, merchanting activities. You had, um, for the first time, people who were escaping the, uh, the caste system to some extent, perhaps even the gender system, and um, and life in the towns uh, became much freer. It had a lot more promise to it. But the downside was that despite all these new opportunities, people still felt disappointed with their lives. Uh, having overthrown all these, all the iron necessity of rural life, they found that they still experienced birth, ageing, sickness, death, and all those other things we've been looking at over the weekend. Uh, so it became a big, a, a big problem, something that was intensively discussed. Why do we suffer? You know, having, having all these new opportunities, uh, we're, we're still not getting it right. We're still, we're still suffering. You know, bad things are still happening to us. And this is precisely where, according to the tradition, Siddhartha Gautama started. You know, he, he grew up in a, uh, in a privileged household. You can forget all that stuff about him being the king's first son and all that. There was no king. Um, his dad was just the... Um, uh, the elected leader, uh, elected by the other aristocrats of a small tribal republic. Uh, but he, obviously the family was doing quite well, so young Siddhartha grew up um, in comparative luxury and in comparative freedom, given the, um, uh, the kind of culture that was developing in the towns, even the town he came from, which was called uh, Kapilavatu. And uh, so this apparently was the Buddha's starting point. You know, uh, it's all very well, you know, um, 
my enjoying all these luxuries and uh, having a beautiful wife, etc., etc. But hey, you know, where's it going to end? It's going to end in old age, sickness and death, etc. So, um, so he left home to try and deal with, solve this problem. And this is a very conventional way of telling the story. It's probably, you know, sort of right. You know, it, at least it's a plausible account of why he started. So then, uh, six years later, he has his big breakthrough and, uh, and now wants to talk about uh, how, what insights he's gained into this particular existential problem that people in the towns were suffering uh, as a result of the agricultural revolution. People needed to have uh, some sort of a grasp on their disappointment with the way things were going. And so if you look carefully at uh, the account, particularly the accounts of the Buddha's early teaching, all those wonderful, inspiring accounts of people hearing him speak and being converted to, uh, to his message and to his practice, who are these people? They're townies, you know, they're people like him. Uh, they know the problem he's talking about. They suffer from it themselves. Uh, so um, in this way, uh, what he's teaching is meeting their needs and interests, just as it met his. Um, so um, really, the Dharma began in this uh, very pragmatic manner. Uh, and as Nietzsche would say, the Buddha turned his back on all the metaphysical truth claims and um, claims to authority and claims to esoteric knowledge about where the cosmos was at. He didn't, he didn't want to know about that. And one thing that comes, you find again and again and again in the account of the Buddha's life and teaching is he wouldn't buy into that stuff. You know, someone would ask him if, uh, you know, if there was a God, he would just either remain silent or say, look, it's got nothing to do with anything. And that was, of course, right. It's got nothing to do with our needs and interests. And um, he eventually drew up a list of, I think it was 14 imponderables, as they know. These sorts of questions, you know, what happens to uh, a Buddha after his death? Does he exist or does he not exist? Or does he neither exist or not exist? Or does he either exist or not exist? The Indians had a pretty colourful, logical system. <laughs> and, and he just wouldn't answer. Um, and then eventually, of course, he came out with that famous parable uh, about a man shot with a poisoned arrow. So there's this character lying on the ground with a poisoned arrow stuck in him. And his friends rush off and get a, a, a surgeon who comes back and rolls up his sleeves and about to deal with the problem. And uh, the character with the arrow stuck in him says, hang on, wait a minute, you can't take that arrow out until I know who fired the arrow and what his lineage was and what the chemical composition of the poison is, 
and what the stone in the head is and what sort of tree the shaft came from, etc. And the Buddha says, would that be a sensible way to approach this problem? <laughs> the obvious thing is to let the surgeon get on with it. You know, it's a, it's a pragmatic problem, deal with it. So um, uh, this was his answer to people who constantly ask these sorts of metaphysical questions. It's irrelevant. It's not whether this particular proposition is true or false. It's irrelevant. It's, it's more than irrelevant. It's a distraction from our immediate problem. And clearly the man with the arrow, the poison arrow in him, is, you know, to talk in medieval terms, every man. <laughs> We've all got a poison arrow stuck in us. Uh, so, um, so we ought to deal with this uh, pragmatically. It's uh, again, you know, as the pragmatists would say, utility trumps truth. Um, so forget about what is right and wrong. Uh, think about what is useful or not useful. Uh, and in particular, whose and what needs and interests are being served and how effectively. Um, so let's follow the Buddha's advice and not get sidetracked into metaphysical claims and counterclaims. And I'm really surprised, I must say, at uh, the number of Buddhists who um, think what the, um, the new militant atheist who sell so many books in airports that they're saying something important or something we need to attend to. Anyway, uh, I would say that going by what we now know about history and the variety of religions, spiritualities, etc., and these are all social practices, you know, I want to emphasise that these, that religions um, and spiritualities are social practices. They are something that are performed in uh, particular societies. And so, you know, I think we, we make the first big mistake in, in reducing religions to their truth claims. Uh, their truth claims don't really matter. Uh, and this was, the, I guess, was part of the problem I was having with the conversation on Friday night, is uh, this sort of um, knee-jerk uh, identification of religion with uh, truth claims, and you know, I and to some extent, I'm a defender of religions because I don't think that's what they're really about. I think they're to do with social practices. And uh, the first of the of um, the uses of religion uh, is um, holding the group together and uh, holding whatever it is the human band, uh, the community together in some sort of an orderly way with an ethic that is going to allow these people uh, to live together in, in, a, um, in, in a reasonably harmonious way. Uh, now, it's already been clear that I'm really fascinated with the Book of Common Prayer. And what is really interesting about that is the amount of thought that went into, that has gone into the successive, um, the successive additions of that, uh, particularly in Elizabethan and Jacobean England, 
to figure out exactly what words are needed to hold the kingdom together. <laughs> right? Uh, you had Puritans who were ranting and raving about against the, you know, this is an age which took their religion really seriously. And you had Puritans who were uh, outraged by uh, the uh, remnants of Catholic liturgy in there, and then you had uh, Catholics who were outraged by Puritan uh, uh, destructiveness of everything that was poetic and, and, uh, and flowery and imaginative. So, uh, you, and particularly, you know, the work that James I himself put into this uh, in, um, at the uh, really, really early in his reign when there was this big conference of theologians to rework, to re-tweak the Book of Common Prayer to some extent and the way James was really trying to figure out a set of words that were going to work because this is a book that was enacted uh, by all the adults in his entire kingdom on a weekly basis. So it was really important uh, that this worked as a form of uh, social and political cohesion. So that's one important aspect historically. I mean, it may not be today, but it's certainly um, an important aspect of, uh, of religious life. Uh, and the, the uh, promulgation of, of moral codes before we had uh, a highly developed uh, modern state with a monopoly of violence and uh, a big police force to keep everybody in line, you needed something else to keep them in line, like promises of hellfire if you got out of line, and that sort of thing. Uh, it's always struck me, you know, that people worry about all the different uh, religious accounts of what happens after death. What is really interesting is that they all have an account <laughs> of life after death, because that was the, uh, uh, the fear factor in keeping people in line during this life. But um, also the holding of communal memory, I think, is really important for an uh, important aspect of, of religion. Uh, and probably its most important aspect is uh, the development of language, uh, and the development of aesthetic practices. And I was making the point on Friday night that there's an exhibition going right on right now in the British Museum um, called Ice Age Art, um, Birth of the Modern Mind. And uh, the premise there is that religiosity began at the same time as music and graphic art. Uh, the music and the graphic art were part of the ritual of uh, religious ceremonies that were holding together human bands facing incredibly tough times with the advance of the Ice Age. Uh, so, you know, ever since, it seems to me, that art has been such a tremendously uh, important child of religious life. Now, of course, we think of art as having nothing whatever to do with art. But um, if you go back to the transition, for instance, to the, from the late Gothic to the early Renaissance art, uh, you can see the enormous in how 
forms of artistic expression were all directed at religious themes, but changing dramatically at the same time as, as um, uh, different intellectual influences came into the church, different approaches to theology, etc. Um, and it's often forgotten that uh, in, in terms of Western Christianity, for instance, um, Western Christianity is responsible for, to a very large extent, the, the English language, which is, owes so much to the Book of Common Prayer. It's, uh, the, the religious authorities were responsible for the beginning of empirical science uh, because uh, you know, theologians figured out they didn't know, really know how God's mind worked and a good way to find out would be to uh, look at nature uh, because it was uh, a clue to how the creator thought. <laughs> so, so this was really how, um, how nat what, what science wasn't always called science. It was called natural philosophy in that time. And that's, that's what its purpose was. And so you get, you know, the beginning, particularly in, in the English tradition of empirical science with Bacon and Boyle, etc. Um, and, um, and, of course, music and, um, and poetry and uh, the graphic arts, as I've said. So um, I would suggest then that uh, religion has been an evolutionary factor. It's one of the things that has allowed us to survive and thrive as thinking, feeling, uh, self-expressing, aesthetic beings. So um, having, with those observations, let me go now to what is Buddhist mindfulness-based meditation for? Um, is it uh, to discover esoteric truths we could not otherwise have discovered? Uh, and um, what, what, whose who's interests do the conventional approaches serve? Now, to some extent, I've already uh, answered that question. That um, uh, the, you know, if, as far as the monastic version of insight meditation or vipassana is concerned, mindfulness meditation, uh, it was supposed to provide um, esoteric knowledge. Think of uh, the Mahasi insight knowledges. Uh, and it was supposed to provide salvation in this sense of enlightenment leading to a transcendence of the human condition. Uh, nowadays, it seems to me it's come back to the original purpose of um, getting us to tune into our bodily experience or starting with our bodily experience. And this is a a very strong emphasis these days in uh, secular Buddhist circles. Our embodiment, this is of course the, the whole um, source of the human condition and so much of the Buddha's own, um, it, the, the, the Buddha's own advice about doing meditation has starts with the body. Knowing, knowing the body, knowing what it's like to be a body. 
This is um, what he means, of course, by fully knowing uh, the, uh, all those, um, that, those items that he listed under Dukkha. And uh, we find, of course, this modus operandi in the Satipatthana Sutta. And there seems to be to be absolutely no promise there of esoteric knowledge, stuff that we wouldn't otherwise figure out for ourselves. But it is simply the vividness, uh, the immediacy, uh, the overwhelming importance of embodied experience and becoming aware of it. This is what is driving uh, the Buddha's uh, advice in the Satipatthana Sutta. So, um, when he talks about, when the Buddha talks about uh, the move from sati, which as we've seen is that um, uh, combination of recollection, recollection and awareness in the present, awareness of what is happening right now, that once we, once we see the pattern, we fully understand it, sampajana. So the, out, the, the product of the, the, um, the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness is sati sampajana, um, being aware and fully understanding the experience that we're having. So um, it has nothing whatever to do with uh, the drilling of um, uh, celibate men in monasteries. But it has to do with us uh, fully grasping what it means to be a human being. So among other things, secular Buddhism aims to reinstate meditation to its earliest role as a major vehicle for tackling the four great tasks we were looking at uh, yesterday morning. And to do so, it promotes a non-formulaic, non-technical insight meditation in which, in, in which one invites the senses and the mind to simply disclose their contents, whatever they are at that time. Uh, and gradually discern the patterns in that experience that we're having in our own individual way of being in the world. So we need an approach to meditation adapted to our actual way of life, not to somebody else's way of life, but to our actual way of life, not one adapted to um, that, for instance, of institutionalised renunciance. Uh, I can't emphasise enough the, the way in which uh, meditation, our experience in meditation, reflects our life process, our own way of life. What we do with the rest of our lives turns up again in meditation practice. And that, as far as the Buddha is concerned, is the way it ought to be. This is the life we are living this is the life we need to be aware of. This is the life we need to tinker with. Um, to meditate effectively, then, all we need to put forward is our effort and our honesty. It makes no sense in this uh, kind of meditative environment to congratulate ourselves 
on being a good meditator or a bad meditator. Um, among beginners, you always get this issue of, you know, am I doing it right? Uh, coming along to um, a meditation interview and saying, am I doing this right? <laughs> or is this, is this what, you know, ha have, am I, ha have I meditated successfully? Is this the result uh, I should be producing at this point? Um, so this is, you know, because we have uh, picked up these um, prepackaged ways of approaching meditation, uh, we get this kind of uh, idea, this feeling of lostness and inadequacy and failure because the, the instructions get in the way. Remember Jason Sieff's uh, uh, book, the subtitle is What to Do When the Instructions Get in the Way. And if they're technical instructions, they almost certainly will get in the way. <laughs> um, okay, so we are all responsible for our own meditation practice. And the major issue we face is whether our approach is, in the modern term, fit for purpose. Are we doing it in a way appropriate to what we're trying to achieve here? Uh, not, you know, uh, who invented this technique or, um, you know, how many people have attained full awakening by following this technique. There's no one true way about it. There is no one true way. The only indications of meditative effectiveness are often subtle and off the cushion. There's, there's an old joke of, about a, um, a meditator going to her teacher and saying, uh, look, I've been doing this practice for 10 years and I still can't do it. Uh, it's still a, a dog's breakfast. <laughs> and um, the teacher say, what about your life over the last 10 years? How's it gone? <laughs> oh, it's great, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. so this is where, of course, the benefits of meditation should be turning up. Not uh, in having blissful uh, uh, periods on the cushion, but actually getting our lives uh, in better order and uh, enriching them. So, you know, questions that might arise when you're assessing your meditation practice in the long term is some, things like, am I gradually strengthening positive qualities such as uh, friendliness, empathy, generosity, clarity and self-reflectiveness and equanimity? And am I seeing more clearly and overcoming my own reactivity, my own immaturity and my own narcissism? You know, there's lots of books out there that claim, probably correctly, that we are living in a culture of narcissism. We all are suffering from it to a certain extent. Meditation can be a terrific way to uh, hold it in check and, if you're lucky, throw it off altogether. Uh, so, in conclusion, um, already in, in the Buddha's own la la lifetime, some of uh, some of his followers, some of the people around, were fetishising his teaching. You know, instead of seeing it as simply a pragmatic approach to um, 
to the uh, to riding the tiger of the human condition, um, people started treating his his dharma like it was the holy grail, and it was a tendency that he really, really um, rejected. And so um, he, there's another parable he used to, to try and correct this um, this mistake. And it was the uh, he, he said that say somebody wants to cross a body of water on one side needs to be on the other side um, and um, so what, is, what does this character do he, he or she goes and collects anything that's lying around old um, you know uh, boughs of trees that have fallen down etc and grabs some vines and ties them up together and makes a sort of uh, rough and ready raft and then uh, launches himself out into across the river, making an effort to get to the other side. You know, the raft is going to get there by itself. Uh, but the raft uh, supports him and gets to the other side successfully, you know, uh, mission accomplished. But then what does he do with the raft? <laughs> and, um, you know, he said, well, maybe this character would say, um, this raft has been extremely valuable to me. I will now carry it on my head as I continue my journey overland. <laughs> uh, is that smart? <laughs> the Buddha said, well, obviously, you just leave it there. You know, you just leave it there, that's all. And um, yeah, if we were, uh, if I suppose he was around today, he'd say, well, you know, if you... Uh, on the side of the river and you want to get to the other side, you look around you find a, a few scraps of polystyrene that have floated down the river and a few, you know, plastic bottles and wrap them up and, and anything uh, and, and you make your way across. Would you, would you then start to fetishise this thing that had got you across the river? Of course not. So... Um, that's actually the point at which um, Stephen Batchelor ends his article, which is out there, and he says, you know, the true question uh, for the Dharma practitioner about any version of the Dharma uh, is not, is it true, but does it float? <laughs> <laughs> so, there you are. Does it work? Um, I'll leave it at that. And uh, we can have a cover and come back and talk about it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.